the the whole like double standard of like how does a woman ba- balance like motherhood and a career she do- she doesn't we're tired we're fucking tired Hello, listeners. I'm Kay, a musical theater nerd. And I'm Warren. I'm musically challenged. We host a podcast every Wednesday called Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse. Join us as I introduce Warren to musicals he's never seen and test his knowledge about musical theater. You have to have knowledge in order to be tested. You've come a long way, babe. Now you know that Andrew Lloyd Webber created Cats and not West Side Story. Is that the one with the cobras? And we still have a ways to go. Tune in every Wednesday to Tone Deaf. Welcome to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. This is a true crime and horror podcast that brings true stories and not-so-true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. I'm your host, Alexandria Youngray, with my lovely co-host, Sunshine Bellon. Hey, folks. <laughs> So yeah, today we are talking about Polly. She is the first canonical victim of Jack the Ripper. And um, yeah, what I was telling you before we started, I, I don't want to imply that she's boring because I, I actually really love her story. It's more mm-hmm. that her story feels, it feels very everyone's story. Mm-hmm. Like her story feels like I bet that this is what most of the people who were homeless women an every woman's story in yeah it's a very every man story but for homeless women in Whitechapel. okay you have a long ass outline for her though two pages are pictures <laughs> but yeah her 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 outline is a six page outline Holy shit! Yeah, that when I started when I when I started but this outlining is your for outline, this, right? Not mine. So that makes a difference. Yeah, this is my outline. Usually, it's my okay. outlines are about this long. Yeah, but yeah, when I when I started outlining for this, I figured that our intro episode would be one episode. Actually, I thought maybe I could do an intro episode and then two of the women, and then another episode that was three of the women. Yeah. No. That's not how you work. You should but, do that by now. <laughs> you know how I suck at uh, brevity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and oh. I am sure that it is some educated white bullshit, but I like to give as many details as possible. I'm not trying to overcomplicate things. I'm trying to give you the whole story. So Yeah. But yeah, I I love Polly's story because it feels very relatable relatable that's that's story what it is yeah yeah her her story is a story that doesn't quite exist today because circumstances are different but if you take out the circumstances the like the the victorian england circumstances right, this I is an everyman story unfortunately you know uh homeless women in poverty uh, it's still pretty relatable today yeah yeah, yeah, and honestly, yeah, I, I, that's exactly what it is, is that, like, 
I think that I think that there will be people who listen to this story and say, not quite, because I don't live in Victorian England, but mm-hmm. that's my story if you take yeah. out Victorian England. Yeah. You know? That's oh, what I sure. was trying to say. Yes. Thank you for helping with yes. that. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> that's what I'm that's what I'm here for. My yeah. value in this podcast is in translating Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Someday I will be medicated. <laughs> Um, <laughs> do you not take ADHD meds now? Not yet. Mm. I have my appointment on the 24th. Polly. Yeah, we haven't even gotten into paragraph one. We haven't even gotten into paragraph one. So yeah, but. Polly Polly is very much an everyman story, except for her everyman story is in the context of Victorian England, so it's that much worse. Right. Victorian England does not sound like a great place to be. No, it's not a great place to be. If you were an aristocrat, then it was kind of cool. Otherwise, yeah. it sucked ass. I was just thinking, though, even as an aristocrat, I don't think it would be that great. I think it was awesome. Especially as a woman. I don't know. Okay, Maybe not for women. Nothing was good for women before. <laughs> I would not go back in time anywhere. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know all. if I'd go to the 80s. Nope. I'm good. Yep. So, Polly was born Mary Ann Walker. And she died Mary Ann, or Polly, Nichols. Uh, She lived from August 26th, 1845 to August 31st, 1888. Story time. So she was 43. Okay. So, Mary Ann Walker, who would become known as Polly. We're not sure where the nickname comes from, but that is literally what she went by. Okay was born the second child of Caroline and Edward Walker on August 26th, 1845. Her elder brother, Edward, was born two years earlier, and her younger brother, Frederick, was born four years later. Her father, Edward, described himself as a blacksmith and engineer, likely involved in the creation of machinery or typeface for the printing press based on the family's location on Fleet Street. Oh, Fleet Street. Fleet Street, otherwise known as the Street of Ink at this time, was mostly known for printing and publishing. And it's Demon Barbers. <laughs> yeah, also that. Um, but basically, because he was a blacksmith and described himself as an engineer and the family was living on Fleet Street. All that adds up. It's safe to presume that he was probably working somehow in the printing press. Okay. So blacksmithing, while a respectable career, did not earn a hefty wage. A blacksmith early in their career could expect to earn three to five shillings a day and could make six shillings and six pence after gaining a permanent position. So that's 18 to 30 shillings a week to start and topping out at almost two pounds a week. You know, I have no context for that whatsoever. Is there a Google, like... Okay, so there's 20 there's there's 20 shillings in a pound and 12 pence in a shilling. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. But I do I do break down like money expenditures. So the average weekly expenditure for a medium-sized family like the Walkers mm-hmm. at this time was about 28 shillings. Okay. So, you know, your early day laborer if they're making, like, as much as they possibly can, will barely afford this. Right. So they're making enough to, it's like hand-to-mouthing it. They're making enough yes, exactly. to pay their bills every month. 
But if someone gets sick or someone stops being able to work, then everyone's fucked because there's no potential for savings. Yes. So, yeah. So housing would cost from four to four and a half shillings a week, which <laughs> we're. I think that's another reason that this isn't translatable is because housing then cost way less than housing does now. Right. Housing is a larger percentage of our paycheck. Because housing inflation is insane. But... um. The real the real thing that was expensive was food. Mm-hmm. Families, like a medium-sized family, would eat 20 shillings in food a week. Wow, yeah. And then there were the costs of necessities like coal, candles, soap. Mm-hmm. And those would cost a few shillings. And then if you sent your kids to school, there was also extra costs for educating your children. Because that was not fu- funded by the government. No. Um, All this is to say, money would have been super tight with very little spending available for superfluous expenses and no room for illness or death. Right. Okay. That's kind of like what I brought up. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Hand of mouth. Ahead of the game. Yep. You're on it. So in 1852, Polly's mother, Caroline, took ill. Uh Uh-oh. What initially appeared to be a simple flu slowly consumed her and she died from tuberculosis on November 25th that same year, when Polly was only seven. Edward continued to care for his family, which didn't always happen in similar situations. Sometimes a single... Usually kids get shipped off. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes a single father would literally just send his kids to an orphanage. Wow. Although he did likely receive aid in child-rearing from Caroline's older sister, Mary Webb. Mm-hmm. So he probably wasn't doing it entirely on his own. Yeah. Then a year and a half later, Polly's younger brother also sickened, likely having contracted the same illness that his mother had without realizing it. Mm -hmm. Fearing for the worst, Edward had his son Frederick baptized on March 13th, 1854. And a month later, he was buried next to his mother at St. Andrew's Church in Holborn. Oh, no. This sort of thing was really common. Yeah. Losing so. parents, losing siblings. We didn't have antibiotics yet. Yeah. I think this was a period in time when doctors were still literally arguing over whether or not you should wash your hands before doing surgery on your patients. Oh, God. <laughs> so losing family members to illness, especially in poverty... Right. Which we talked about in our intro episodes, you know, the the stagnant water and just how fucking dirty everything was. Insanely is common. It, is tuberculosis a bacterial infection? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Most of the most of the things that these folks die from is bacterial. Um, but you know, like, viruses spread in dirty yeah. s- situations as well. And the fun thing about tuberculosis is that sometimes it can lie dormant. And then just sort of randomly be like, you know what? I think I feel like killing now. Or if your immune system has like a moment of stress where Mm -hmm. you're able to keep it in check. Kind of wakes up your tuberculosis. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the reason some people died really, really quickly from tuberculosis. And some people just sort of didn't. Yeah. (laughs) So... Having lost her mother, Polly would have been expected to take the role of caretaker for the house as the only girl. Mm -hmm. 
at the age of seven. Wow. Wow. Okay. I guess even if you're seven, if you're a female, you inherently know how to run a house and take care of people. I mean, I think basically what it is is that you're in charge of cleaning and cooking. But it's still insane to imagine a seven-year-old taking on the responsibility for that. When I was seven, I would still go in the bathroom and sit on the toilet and mix the shampoo and conditioner together. (laughs) Come on now. (laughs) I love that imagery. (laughs) It's very true. I don't know why it came to mind so readily, but it's true. Yeah, I was definitely using, like, bathroom supplies to make spells. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, no, this was a really common thing is that it, it was actually a, a trope, an archetype. The single female daughter of a widowed man. Uh, check Beauty and the Beast? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is that trope existing today. But basically, you know, they are expected to be morally perfect mm-hmm. and put others ahead of themselves always and be emotionally and physically supportive of her father. Mm-hmm. So Polly had a lot of pressure put on her. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. This also would have prevented her from taking on full-time employment. Not at right. seven, but like when she became but, a teenager. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as that often was required for girls to leave their home. Most girls who would take on full-time employment would end up in a factory or in domestic service. And in domestic service, you went Live and lived with, with somebody else. Yeah. However, due to the reduced family size, Edward's wages were capable of covering expenses, which enabled Polly to split her time between taking care of the home and attending school. Well, that's nice. Which made it so that she was one of probably very few women to learn to read at this time. Now, schooling wasn't compulsory until 1876. But not only did many well-off working class families send their children to school because it enabled, you know, back then, schooling your kid, actually, no, it's still the case. Educating children made it so that they were better set up for living life. Right. Go figure. Yeah. But for a family working in the printing industry, literacy was a basic necessity. Right. That makes sense. (laughs) You can't work in the printing press if you don't know how to read. Yeah. Because even if, I mean, obviously you're not writing the stuff, but yeah, if you can't read it, you can't copy it. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, basically, good luck setting it up correctly. (laughs) Yeah. How do you typeset? Yeah. And in Polly's case, despite her gender and class, uh, she was able to stay in school until the age of 15, where she learned to read and write, which was particularly uncommon for girls. Go Polly. So that was just kind of cool for her. Polly eventually fell in love and got wed. On January 16th, 1864, an 18-year-old Polly married the 19-year-old printer William Nichols. Most likely, that's literally how they met. Right. Is through similar occupations. Yeah. The two families combined into three wage earners, which enabled the Walker Nichols family to move into a home with two separate rooms so the newlyweds might have some privacy. Nice. Yeah. And on December 17th of that same year, Polly had her first child. 
William Edward Walker Nichols. (laughs) Although this child would fail to reach the age of two. Oh. Again. SIDS or whatever. Yeah, illness and just early death. Polly and William would continue to have five more children. Oh, boy. Yep. (laughs) You're going to see these big families throughout these stories because birth control had not been invented yet. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, okay. That's not entirely. Okay. Never mind. Proper birth control that was spread and readily available had not been invented yet. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Edward John was born on July 4th, 1866. George Percy on July 8th, 1868. Alice Esther in December of 1870. Eliza Sarah in late 1876. And Henry Alfred in December of 1878. George Percy is my favorite name. George Percy is a pretty good name. (laughs) And I actually think all of these children did live. Oh, that's great. So that's pretty cool. I don't want to be laughing at the name of a dead child. <laughs> Valid. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I guess I will warn you now. Uh, next story. Hold your laughter. Okay. Don't because laugh there's a name. lot of dead kids in the next story. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say as perky as I did. <laughs> a lot of dead kids. A lot of dead kids in the next story. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. So after Alice's birth in 1870, Polly's brother Edward moved away to start his own family. Oh, Edward. So, you know, you had three wage earners. Mm-hmm. You had Edward Sr., Edward Ju- Jr., and William Nichols. Oh, okay. For some reason, I assumed that Polly was a wage earner, but obviously not. Just because no, she was educated doesn't mean like, she worked. Like I said, she wasn't able to leave the home. I just assumed that when she was no longer a child and there were more age wage earners. But yeah, I guess that wouldn't make sense because she's still the woman in the family. So of course. Yeah. She was taking care of the household. Yeah. 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 So. Let's, let's take a short. Jaunt. (laughs) To a different subject. We're going to talk about the Peabody housing. Okay. So there's this dude, George Peabody. He's from the U.S., but he moved to London in 1838. Is it like the Peabody Awards, too? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. He's super rich and super famous. Okay. So he didn't start rich, but he became rich, and he wanted to legitimately donate his money to a cause he believed in, well, which nice. was housing the poor. He announced a donation of 150,000 pounds, which ultimately grew to 500,000 pounds, which is 60 million US dollars today. Oh, you did that conversion I wanted. Yeah, that's because the book did it. (laughs) (laughs) Got that from the book. (laughs) So... His only requirements for residents of these low-income buildings be that they were a Londoner by birth Mm -hmm. or residence, and that the individual should be poor, have moral character, and be a good member of society. And that no one should be excluded on grounds of religious belief or political bias. Well, that's lovely. So it was 
about pretty... as woke as you're gonna get in Victorian England. I was about to say egalitarian, but yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, in 1864, the first Peabody building opened, but many more followed. These apartments were gas-lit, came in one to four rooms of 14 to 15 oh, wow. feet by 11 to 12 feet. So, bigger than your common rooms. And surrounded a communal courtyard. So, oh, like a classic apartment nice. building. Um, they also provided modern amenities, such as kitchens with proper ranges and ovens, cupboards, Hot including damn. a meat safe, which was, you know, the ye old refrigerator before, right. like, electricity I made forget how they did that, but they had, like, a magical way to keep those cool. I remember, I, I remember looking into it, but basically it was, like... Metal and double glass doors and Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. It was this box that, like, had... Yeah, it had, like, metal and glass, and it was not good for keeping things for a long time, but basically right. you kept, like, perishables in there for a day or two. Right. Which was kind of cool. It also had improvements on clean cleanliness and hygiene, like a tenant laundry and a wow. bath with gas-heated water and indoor toilets with water sinks meant only to be shared between two apartments. That's, Which that is really way sounds... better than a shit house that was overrunning for the entire fucking street. Right. That sounds like next level accommodations for that era. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, these were actually like nice buildings for impoverished people. Sweet. Way to go, Peabody. Um, this is also where the waste disposal system of a rubbish chute was created. Oh. Was for these buildings. That's sweet. Which I think is kind of neat, because we still have rubbish chutes. <laughs> I like, rubbish chutes freak me out. I always think there's going to be something scary going on with them. Probably because too many horror movies have made, and, and yeah. horror video games, like, rubbish chutes are definitely a place of scary. Also, yeah. probably because I bet they just eventually start smelling like ass. So, you know, these were really cool, really modern buildings that were catered to the poor, and they actually helped over 30,000 Londoners out of the slums. That's so nice. Yeah. So, honestly, I think that this was actually really, really cool. I think it did a lot and helped a lot of people. Well, how could it not? That's such a drastic uptick from anything I've ever heard described of Victorian-era England. Right? Uh, ever. Yeah. So, anyway, that's the Peabody Buildings. Demand for this low-income housing was extremely high, so the expectations of the tenants were equally high. Uh, tenants could not be habitually drunk or have a criminal record. Oops, I'm out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh my god, both you and I drink way too much to be a Victorian women woman. Like, be like being a woman and drinking ever was a moral downfalling for. Oh. It, it, we'll get into it in all okay. of these stories, I swear. But yeah, couldn't be habitually drunk, couldn't have a criminal record. Tenants could not live together as an unmarried couple. Oh, double out. Yep. The man of the house had to provide a letter of character from their employers. This both proved their gainful employment as well as showed that they weren't hiding any distasteful qualities. Oh, I see. It was a character reference that 
you know, was also the equivalent of a pay stub. Right. Uh, Some tenants were turned out for not properly upkeeping themselves or their lodgings. So if your house isn't clean enough? So, like, basically, if you were dirty, like, if you were, you know, filthy, if you weren't caring for your space or yourself, they would evict you. Which, like, it sucks, but, like, it's kind of fair because you have this, this, like... That's exactly what I was just thinking. If if it's the issue is way too complex to say, oh, if you can't keep it clean, you don't deserve to be there. But you can also see how the the proprietors of something like that would be like, well, I'm not just going to build a super nice place and then have people living in it who don't appreciate it and aren't trying to pull themselves up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's a matter of, of who deserves to live there or not so much yeah. as like you have this place that is like you know, you have to keep the, nice. the, the bleeding edge of hygienic tech, I guess. Yeah. You know, like, this is the first time that we have, like, decently running fresh water, clean water to clean yourself with. This is the first time you have, like, separate kitchen area than the rest of the house. Like, you know, this is, this is like, they, they have laundry for the tenants. And so, like... Yeah. You know, they're trying to make it so that all of these people that are impoverished can have access to a hygienic living space. And so you can't let people be unhygienic in that living space or you're literally letting the space drop for everyone else who is trying to be hygienic in that living space. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, it's complicated, but I, I don't blame them for throwing people out for not taking care of their space. So... Back to Polly. Mm-hmm. On July 31st, 1876, Polly and William moved their family into the Peabody building on Stamford Street on the second floor of D Block 3. <laughs> Good job, Polly. Conveniently close to William's workplace. Oh, yeah. uh, when the Nicholses moved into the Peabody building, Polly's father did not come with them, instead moving in with his son's family. So for the first time in Polly's life, she lived away from her family and out of the slums. Wow. Which was two really, really big changes for her. Nice job, Polly. Yeah, like, it's kind of, it's kind of like, oh, cool. Like, we're going up in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we're slowly climbing that social ladder and slowly climbing out of the muck. Yay. And, I feel like things um, are, I mean, obviously, this is not going to end well. <laughs> it's not going to end well. But, you know, there's a moment of like, oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah. So shortly after the birth of Eliza Sarah, they moved from their four room into a three room in the same block number six. Mm -hmm. Basically, money was pinched as children were born and died and children came of age to be wage earners or wage earners died. Yeah. You know. And so having one more mouth to feed, they moved into an apartment with fewer rooms. Yeah. Their neighbor, Sarah Vidler, in number five, so they're number six, Sarah's in number five, had moved to D Block in 1875 with four of her five children, Sarah Louise, Jane, William, and her eldest daughter, 21-year-old Rosetta. Mm -hmm. So they became neighbors. Obviously, those families... Got really, really close. And Rosetta had married in 1874 to a ship's cook. Now, his trips abroad left Rosetta separated 
but legally bound and therefore unable to remarry. Thus, so she remained a dependent of her mother's household. I'm sure it doesn't matter and it's probably just unknown, but they must have been more than separated for her to be wanting to remarry. I mean, so basically, like, he was physically far and was not helping her financially. Okay. So she married for love and then was like, oops. So, so yeah, so that's the problem is that, like, she was married. She was legally married, but her husband was not there and was not providing for her. And so she was financially dependent And the only other way she mom. could be provided for economically was to get married again. Right. Okay. So gotcha. basically she still stayed in her mother's household. Right. Gotcha. Her and her mother took employment as charwomen, mm-hmm. which is the most poorly paid service occupation. And what is that? They're, they're domestic. They're domestic servants. They're come in and clean maids. Okay. So they're not live-in maids. Right. It's like when you call Molly maids They're just come in and clean maids and they are terribly paid. Oh no. Yeah. And did we talk about this when we were doing the introduction that just like women's labor, like reproductive labor was just paid less? Yes, we did. Okay, good. Yeah. So basically because they were doing women's work and it was like the ultimate women's work, just somebody coming in to clean your house or coming in to clean an office space. Regardless of how physically demanding or whatever it may be, it's women's work, so it's not valuable. Yep, exactly. So... When Polly needed extra help after the birth of Henry Alfred, oh, Henry Alfred, Rosetta and her sisters offered their help and the two families became super close. Okay. William Vidler even began a position as a porter for the same company William Nichols worked and Ooh. Sarah Vidler's younger girls began bookfolding work. Oh, lovely. So like the families got just really intertwined. Inter- intertwined. Yeah. They, I think they even shared the, uh, like, toilet closet i think that they were basically just shared the water closet yeah yeah yeah. i think they basically were like the combined spaces right so just those families were together (laughs) yeah now here's where things start going downhill at some point polly and william began to argue According to William's later testimony, the arguments were due to Polly taking up a drinking habit. Although if she did, it couldn't have been as severe as William said, or the family would have had to leave the Peabody building. Because if you recall, you couldn't be habitually drunk. Right. According to Polly's father, the arguments began because William had begun an affair with Rosetta. I knew it! (laughs) I saw that coming. I didn't even read ahead in the outline and I saw that shit coming. (laughs) Yeah... So, I'm I'm pretty sure Polly's version of the story is the true version. Although she might have been drinking to, like, well, deal probably, with it. Well, I mean, I think that that's, uh, you know, just what you said about um, if it was actually as bad as her husband said, they would have been kicked out of the Peabody building. Mm-hmm. The issue is not, I mean, how could anyone not want to be drunk all the time living in Victorian era England? <laughs> First of all. Well, and also, and I think I've talked about this in the intro episodes, people who lived in various levels of poverty drank light beer as their water source. That's exactly what I was... Because drinking water was unsafe. Two, and I forget exactly when the changeover was, but, uh, you know, there was a time when, even in Great Britain, 
where especially factory owners, they would provide like watered down beer for their workers. It was mm-hmm. b- before they started providing coffee breaks. Like that's where the traditional coffee break came from was employers used to make, have like provided beer breaks, ale breaks so that because as giving them alcohol, you know, helped with pain, kept people compliant, kept people working, the calories sort of substituted for food. So like, you know, bread. Yeah, so, like, yeah, she probably was drinking. Because, like, why the fuck wouldn't she be? That is but you're so right. dangerous in a factory setting. No wonder people lost their fingers all the goddamn time. Osho would lose their shit. Oh, my but... God. <laughs> I, I am currently losing my shit. <laughs> like, don't act like you've never drank a beer and used a table saw. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I've never drank a beer and used a table saw. <laughs> oh, just me, then. <laughs> Arguments. An affair with Rosetta. Okay. Fucking Rosetta. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> so between 1878 and 1880, Polly would leave her marital home and take refuge with her brother and father. Somewhat regularly. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they would convince her to return home and to her duties as a wife and mother. Also, her brother had his own family along with his father and just simply didn't have the room for Polly. Mm, poor Polly. So, and I want I want this to be really, really, really clear for this episode particularly, but also for every episode going forward. As a woman in Victorian England, your only purpose was being a wife and and a mother probably not even very much personal identity beyond that either it was your identity and so this is this is all information that like you'll have to kind of guess at but when we're trying to imagine what like was going on inside their minds like like on the like internally i think that it's really really important to keep that weird value structure in mind oh i I mean it makes perfect sense because you know it's not so for her you know losing having her husband be unfaithful and which i'm sure other women probably just put up with but losing your role as a wife and a mother on top of everything else like on top of the emotional trauma and the damage and the feelings of worthlessness that come from your partner cheating on you then having your i literally your identity stripped away mm-hmm. like i've experienced a fraction of that in just like shaking up my life and being like okay what am i gonna ch-? you know i'm changing career paths who am i and that's like that's enough to like throw you off hard i can mm-hmm. only imagine if your entire identity was wrapped is, up yeah is wrapped up in this one thing which is being mm-hmm. the wife and mother yeah. And then you have to make the choice of, am I going to stay and just continue to be disrespected and cheated on? Or mm-hmm. am I going to leave and sacrifice my entire identity? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, the thing is, like, leaving behind a relationship and your children is going to be hard no matter what. But in this context, there's no, like, well, you know what? You go get it, girl. Like, take on the world. It's like, no, I have failed as a human being. Yeah. Well, and not only are you going to feel that way internally, but like you were kind of hinting at 
there's not going to be any of that societal support. Society is going to be reinforcing the idea that, like, yes. yeah, you failed and you suck. Oh, You're yeah. gross. And we'll kind of get into that in talking about, well, Polly. Yeah. So on March 29th, 1880, Polly Nichols left her marital home for the final time, leaving her husband and her children behind. Polly had also failed as her only duty as a woman, that of a wife and mother. Polly's suspicions of William's adultery were likely correct. On July 1882, Rosetta and William moved out of the Peabody buildings and into a home together after Rosetta discovered her husband had relocated to Australia and was not likely to return to assert legal rights to her. Legal rights to her. Literally, yes. Ugh. On July 31st, 1883, William and Rosetta Nichols took their first child, three-week-old Alfred, to be christened. On that same day, Henry Alfred, Polly's youngest son, was also christened as William and Rosetta's child. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. That stings. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of hurt in these stories. So, in 1880, which is when Polly left, a divorce was not only expensive, but extremely difficult to obtain. A man could get divorced for his wife's infidelity, but a woman could not cite infidelity as the sole reason to obtain her divorce. Right. That's kind of the vibe. I mean... I hate it, but it's what it was. Another passive impression I have of Victorian England is that, like, if your place is to be a wife and a mother, that's not the same thing as being an emotional and sexual partner. So, you know, your husband could go and... Well, and we talked about this, too, in the earlier episode about the, you know, the women being put on a pedestal and the... the right, the Edwardian England expectations. You're not a sexual being, so... Yeah. Like, of course your husband's probably going to go do the D with somebody else. Right. And I mean, if you look back at, like, 1950s, like, are you a good wife? Are you a good husband? You know, the equivalent of a cosmopolitan quiz. Yeah. Your are you a good wife is like, do you never swear? Is dinner always ready when your husband comes through the door? Are you are you always looking your best for not only your husband, but for your husband's friends so that your husband's friends know how good your husband is as a man? And like the man's version is like, do you hit your wife? Do you cheat on your wife? <laughs> do you hit your wife? Do you make sure the lipstick's off your collar before you come home? Yeah. And so, like, you know, in Victorian England, a man could cite his wife's infidelity as a reason for divorce, but a woman would have to cite infidelity and something like incest or severe abuse. Not just, you know, slapping you around. That was fine. But, like, severe, yeah, broke my collarbone level abuse in order to obtain grounds for for divorce. Which is why no-fault divorces are feminist as fuck. Anyway, <laughs> even if Polly could afford it, William's relationship with Rosetta was not enough for her to get divorced from him. So he was not remarried to Rosetta, so he, him and Rosetta were living in sin and still able to get children christened? I mean, I think basically it was just that, like, documents were less, like public like less easily obtainable you know like we didn't have like an internet so basically you could go into the church and say oh yeah we're married and the church would believe you they wouldn't check right you know which they don't do anyway it's more like 
Yeah, okay. Right, you're just getting christened. Like, there's no legal reason to make sure. I guess I was just thinking of the moral double standard there. Oh, yeah, it's a moral double standard that they were absolutely living off of, but... Yeah. Yeah. So, Polly could not remarry, and any labor that a woman could do would not pay a living wage, which we talked about. So, it almost would have been a kindness if her husband would have divorced her. Realistically. Kind of. Yeah. Because then, then she could have remarried and, and maybe would have been better off. Right. But I mean, her if husband he's gonna leave couldn't her anyway. divorce her because she wasn't cheating on him. But he probably could have just claimed that. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just saying. Like, it gets complicated and we'll get into something like that. Okay. But, but also divorces were insanely expensive. Right. So why would he, if he didn't care anyway, he would just fuck right off. And man, that's such, that's so much worse. Yeah, it's awful. It's Ugh. really, really shitty. Victorian England was set up to force couples to stay together, whether or not it was a terrible idea. Well, to force couples to stay together. Really? No, it's just forcing women to stay with men. It's not forcing yes. couples to stay together, obviously, yes. because he was able to go off and do whatever the fuck whatever he wanted. Whatever the fuck he wanted. Yeah. And it just left her more fucked than if she would have never gotten married in the first place. Yes. Ooh, I'm getting mad. Oh yeah, no. This series is the get mad about women. Like this is this is a feminist like scream about patriarchy. The series. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. So after leaving the marital home, Polly went to the Lambeth Union Workhouse mm-hmm. on Renfrew Road. We talked about those workhouses. Although Polly would have spent her life learning to fear the workhouse. Yeah. The only way to achieve any kind of official separation from her husband was to prove herself destitute. And the workhouse was the only resource to achieve this end. So she could kind of, like, not divorce but legally separate if she was yes. destitute? Because that you means he's not taking separate. care of her? Yeah. So, basically, men were considered responsible for the financial upkeep of their families. This was the only, okay. like, legal grace given to women in Victorian England. Okay. I was, I was wondering. I was going there in my head. All right. Yeah. So, Polly would have been interviewed by a relieving officer about her personal details and the reason for the marital breakdown. Then William would have been interviewed about this, the same details of the separation. And mm-hmm. even if he used Polly's drinking as the reason, the relieving officer didn't seem to believe it. Outside relief was not offered to a deserted wife known to drink. Oh. But Polly was awarded a weekly maintenance of five shillings per week that she was able to collect from the relieving officer. So, so if I get this right, William had to pay that to her. It was like an alimony. Her drinking could have precluded her from that, but didn't. Yes. Okay. Which, which shows that again, his claims were probably totally false. Yeah. Or at least even if she was drinking, she was not drinking enough for it to have been a problem. Right. And, and like, (laughs) <laughs> what we consider a problem modern, not even close. <laughs> right. Well, that's kind of what I was uh, trying to allude to, I guess, earlier in our discussion when I was talking about, you know, employers providing alcohol and everything is I think that a vast majority of people were walking around with uh, a buzz that you and I would not go to the grocery store with. <laughs> <laughs> right. Especially considering, yeah, light beer was how they consumed water. Yeah. For some reason, this time Polly didn't go to her father and brother. Instead, she went out on her own. However, this was short-lived. 
With William and Rosetta trying to start a new life together, Polly's allowance would have put a strain on the new family. So William hired a man to follow Polly and gathered evidence that she was living with a man, thus committing adultery. He could cease payments and did in early 1882. So she was committing adultery. That's nice. I mean, the thing is, it's debatable whether she actually was. Because after after her allowance stopped, she found herself completely destitute. Right, which wouldn't have been the case if she would have been living with a man. Like we were talking about in, the, in one of the earlier episodes again. Yeah. Where in the, in the earliest episodes, and... when we were talking about how often women literally lived with men for financial security. Right. And then we're, recalled, then, then we're considered to be prostitutes because of it. Yes. Yeah. Right. But basically, Fucking like, gross. because she found herself completely destitute after the allowance stopped, she might not have even been living in sin right. with another man. So... On April 24th, 1882, Polly entered the Lambeth Union Workhouse for a lengthy stay. She actually entered the workhouse. Uh. She spent some time infirmed in January and discharged herself March 24, 1883, but went back two months later from May 21st to June 2nd. Mm -hmm. This time when she left the workhouse, she was able to find shelter with her family. Although the home was crowded with Edward Sr., Edward Jr., and Edward Jr.'s wife, and five children. Oh, my God. So whatever drinking habits Polly may or may not have picked up prior, she brought home with her. Well, I mean, definitely, regardless of whether or not she... I, I mean, it does sound like the evidence is like she didn't really have a drinking problem, you know, when her husband... when. Her husband tried to divorce her or anything like that. But shit. <sighs> After everything. But she did you know, drink ever. And that was well, unacceptable and, behavior of a woman. Too. And, and, you know, after everything that happened to her in 1882, like, my God. It's couldn't blame. Could not blame her if she did have a drinking problem by 1883. Right. Yeah, no, and that's why when we started talking about alcoholism in our introduction episodes, I was, like, kind of cuspy Mm -hmm. with calling it alcoholism because it's like, would you not also be drinking? Like, literally, of these women, yes, all of them drink a little sometimes, clearly. But only one of them actually ruined her own life with it. Right, and alcoholism is going to be very, very heavily influenced by cultural parameters because it has to do with whether or not it... You know, it's 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 about whether or not your addiction is so severe that it affects your life. And everyone was drunk all the time back then. Right. But also, like, women drinking was unacceptable back then. Right. So any level of self-medicating with alcohol was a problem if you were a woman. Exactly. Exactly. And so, like, I have a really hard time figuring out how much Polly really was drinking. Because, yeah, her family argued with her over her drinking, but was that because she was actually, like, a little fucking shit when she was drinking? Or because they were just puritanical. Yeah, or was it just that a woman was drinking and it was unacceptable and, like, don't drink in front of the children or the the, the little girls might learn that drinking is acceptable, you know? So Polly spent a great deal of her time in local public houses. 
But her father later claimed that she did not stay out particularly late, nor had he heard anything particularly improper about the people she spent time with. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, keep in mind, this is a Victorian woman who left her failed marriage and her children and was now living in the crowded home with her brother's continually growing family. You would stay out at the bar, too. Yeah, yeah. You're constantly reminded of how you failed by your family, who you cannot escape because, boy, howdy, they're everywhere. Boy, howdy, they're everywhere. Oh. So after one particularly bad argument, Polly decided to leave. And in March of 1884, about a year after leaving the workhouse, Polly moved in with Thomas Stewart Drew a blacksmith, and a widower with three daughters. Surprisingly similar to the situation her own father found himself in when she was a girl. Likely she felt for Drew, as well as likely found some kind of internal peace, being able to once again serve some kind of wife and mother role. And this is legitimately the only time that we can basically be sure she actually was... Having sex out of marriage. Oy. Okay. Let alone, you know, prostituting herself. Right. Yeah, nothing about her thus far screams, like, party girl Nightwalker. Nope. I mean, to be perfectly honest, like, I think the only reason that she was willing to, like, move in with this man is because the situation felt so close to home for her. Right, and being able to step into a wife and mother role when you feel like you'd failed that way before, it's a pretty good opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So she lived with Thomas Stewart Drew for a few years and did not speak to her father again until June of 1886 at her brother's funeral. That seems a little early. So a kerosene lamp had burst onto his face and chest, resulting in third-degree burns that left him in a coma he never awoke from. Oh, what a way to go. Yeah. That's burns. Oh, all of of these stories suck so much. So much. So much. So After the death of her brother, Polly's relationship with Thomas began breaking down, which makes sense. She probably started drinking again. Right. Yeah. So by November 1886, and recall the funeral was in June, Mm -hmm. they were no longer together. And this also stings. The next month, Thomas remarried. To a woman he could sanctify a union with. See, that makes it seem a lot less like it would be about any drinking she did or not do because of her brother's death. And a lot more about whatever social hierarchy that Thomas wanted to maintain by being able to, like, be married and not be living in sin. Right. Like yeah. That. You don't marry someone a month after breaking up with somebody else if you weren't already wanting to do it in the first place. Like... He had to have already been thinking that he wanted to have, like, a marriage. Polly probably got depressed after her brother Mm -hmm. died. And Thomas was probably already looking for a way out to marry somebody, to be with somebody he could actually marry. Yeah. He no longer 
felt the need to stay in a relationship with a woman he couldn't marry because she wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm. Ugh. So once again, Polly had to turn to the Lambeth Union Workhouse and checked in on November 15th, 1886. Fortunately, this stay was short. Workhouses offered some services by way of seeking outside employment for inmates. In this case, domestic services for women. So we kind of talked about the workhouse and how you'd go in and you'd work and then you'd come out with nothing. Every once in a while... Mm-hmm. They were able to do to do like outsourced work programs, Which but you weren't better. in the workhouse. You were actually working elsewhere. Yeah, through workhouse services. Right, that sounds better. Yeah. So an older woman would have extensive knowledge of the needs in domestic labor. Uh, you know, she'd know how to sew. She'd know how to cook. She'd know how to clean. So employers may have been willing to look the other way at whatever circumstances landed this woman in the workhouse in the first place. So under you other circumstances, employers will be judgy about that. Absolutely. Mm. But, you know, good worker. So let's just not worry about the fact that she is a, a woman who left her only calling as a woman. Because that's important. In these times. Um, so by December 16th, Polly was discharged into service. This placement, however, was short-lived and the arrangement ended by May 1887. This time, instead of returning to the workhouse, Polly opted to take her chances tramping. Because fuck the workhouse. <laughs> yeah. By October 1887, Polly had become one of the many homeless in Trafalgar Square during the social movement leading up to Bloody Sunday. Which is kind of wild. I I was thinking that Bloody Sunday was something that happened during the, like, Irish Civil War. Not something that was that long ago. Am I high? Like, what? There are multiple Bloody Sundays. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That helps. So, so yes. Also, yes. There is one that happened in the 70s that was an well, Irish that's what Bloody I was Sunday. Of. Okay. Yeah. That's probably, th- to be perfectly honest, that is probably the more commonly known Bloody Sunday. Okay. So, which, blo- which Bloody Sunday is this one? This is the first one, the 1887 one. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Are you going to give me a brief overview of what that is? Oh, yeah, I can I can kind of talk about that. So social reformers mixed with the genuinely homeless who okay. had gathered partially to support the movement and partially to receive offerings from bread to lodging house tickets from good Samaritans who'd also joined the masses. Okay. So you've got social reformers, you know, Marxists who came to speak or whatever, actually homeless folk. And then, like, you know, random missionary-type folk who came to, like, hand out bread and tea and lodging house vouchers. Okay. And they were all gathering, and people were, like, speaking in the square. hmm So it was kind of starting to get the police sweaty. Sweaty. <laughs> sweaty. 
As demonstrations intensified, the police attempted to combat the disorder by means of the Vagrancy Act, arresting any quote-unquote rogues or vagabonds found in Trafalgar Square. Mm. So, Bloody Sunday, it actually did have something to do with Ireland, because part of the protesting was about unemployment. Oh. So yeah, basically there were like, there were a lot of social reformers and a lot of homeless people and just a lot of people that were meeting together and like talking radical. Okay. Police were not down. <laughs> and they were trying to, I guess, prevent radical people from radically changing stuff. Mm-hmm. There was a rally, I think that was specifically made because somebody was arrested okay but i think the big thing that happened was actually that like 400 people were arrested and a bunch of people were injured and i don't think that there was a whole lot of death that happened right but there was a lot of like violence there was a lot of violence yeah it was just kind of big and there was, like, a lot of fighting between the police and protesters. Okay. All right. Social justice issues, poor women, Trafalgar Square. I think I can kind of put that together. Yeah. Yeah. It is not the most famous Bloody Sunday, but it is a Bloody Sunday that, that, that bloodied a Sunday. That bloodied. <laughs> Basically, folks were worried about all of the nuisances at Trafalgar Square, so... The Vagrancy Act. They arrested all the rogues and vagabonds. So basically, they were arresting all of the tramps. Right. And I think that you're going to appreciate this story because I really like this story. Okay. On October 24th, 1887, an arrest was made of six women, two girls, and two youths. Mm-hmm. Polly was one of these women. Ugh, poor Polly. And she did not go willingly. Good. Swearing and fighting at the police station. That's right, Polly. Get it. The next morning, when she appeared before the magistrate, the police judged her to be the worst woman in the square. Wow. <laughs> so she was not having it. I just love that. <laughs> she was like, worst fuck you, and square. just kicking and screaming as she got arrested. So Polly was released on October 25th on her own recognizance, uh, but told to immediately go to the workhouse or face, or face arrest again. And she followed this judgment and went immediately to the nearest workhouse. So in December, Polly checked herself out, but spent Christmas in the Lambeth workhouse, which was the one night a year when inmates received a proper dinner. It's a good thing to stay for. Yeah. So between January and April, Polly spent some time in the harsh winter, some time in infirmary, and was transferred between workhouses who disagreed on who had jurisdiction and thus responsibility for footing the bill for Polly. Mm. Eventually, she ended up back in Lambeth Workhouse, and once again, they were able to find her outside domestic service work. On May 12, 1888, Polly arrived at the home of Sarah and Samuel Cowdery. The middle-class home housed only the couple in their 60s and their 20-something niece. So Polly would have been expected to cook meals and clean the home, but would have been afforded her own attic room and bed, new clean clothes, an environment safe from the elements, vermin, and drunken strangers. Well, that sounds nice. Yeah. It was actually probably 
one of the first times that she had received any form of respite in literally years. Ugh. Yeah, we talk about being tired, goddamn. Yeah. Shortly after arriving at her new employers, Polly wrote her father for likely the first time in two years, as well as asking about her elder son who had been living with his grandfather. Mm -hmm. I just write to say you will be glad to know that I am settled into my new place and going all right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am left in charge. It is a grand place with trees and gardens back and front. All has been newly done up. They are teetotalers and very religious, so I ought to get on. They are very nice people, and I have not much to do. I hope that you are all right and that the boy has work. So goodbye for the present. Yours truly, Polly. Answer soon, please, and let me know how you are. So that is, I believe, the last time she contacted her father. Oh. Was that letter. Do we know um, if he ever got back to her? I'm not sure. There was no indication that he he might have written back, but, well, we'll talk about it. Okay. So, uh, Polly would have been experiencing a level of comfort and security that she hadn't felt since leaving home in 1880. However, her new middle-class home of only a religious, teetotaling older couple and their younger niece would have left Polly fairly socially isolated. Mm. This family would have had no understanding of Polly's life. Her poverty, her tramping, even leaving her family would have all been entirely foreign concepts for the people Polly spent all of her time with. Not to mention that they were actually in different generations. Polly was in her 40s. Right. So you've got yeah. a 60s couple and a 20s girl. Yeah. Polly would have been left alone with her feelings, thoughts, memories, and regrets with no one to talk to and no real outlets. Mm. I mean, again, teetotaling couple. Right. No booze. <laughs> no outlet. So she got to the home. She got to the home May 12th. Mm-hmm. On July 12th, so Sarah Cowdery reported to Renfrew Road Workhouse that Polly Nichols disappeared, taking with her the clothing and goods the Cowdery's had purchased for her employment, worth three pounds, ten shillings. Polly, now having access to a few liquid assets, went off the grid until August. So one month. Basically, we can't track her because she was able to, you know. Get a buy for a month. Yeah, a month. <laughs> yeah, one literal month. Yeah. It was a little over a month. It was late August when she shows back up. Oh, okay. But, yeah. She spent a night at the Gray's Inn Casual Ward on her way to Whitechapel, where she took a bed in Wilmot's lodging house on Thrall Street. If you recall, Thrall Street is one of the streets that the police avoided. Oh, yes. In... Spittlefields. Yes. <laughs> Spittlefields. So, gross. Wilmot's was one of the many low-cost lodging houses in Whitechapel, but it only catered to women lodgers. And I and I think I actually talked to you about this when we were kind of just, like, teasing about the women we were going to talk about. Yeah, we were discussing the pros and cons about that. Yeah. 
Polly was was one of the women who preferred single-sex lodging houses. Yeah, fair enough. And I think it's because she was, like, afraid of being a sex worker. Yeah, I could see why she... Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much where her road is headed, so I can see why she'd be doing everything she can to not go there. Yeah. And, and so, like, and so, like, literally, like, once she was accused of living with another man, but immediately became destitute when she lost her allowance. So it's like, mm. Yeah, probably not. And then once she actually lived with another man for two years, but, like. It sounded more like. Dude was basically her dad. Right. <laughs> like, she was, like, you know, trying to fill in that wife and mother position. So, yeah, technically she was living in sin. But, like. But she was really trying to have a normal a normal yeah like a wife and mother kind of yeah like a normal life as normal as she could get so yeah she's in Whitechapel and she specifically prefers the women only lodging houses polly shared a room with three other women one of them was ellen holland who polly occasionally split the cost of a double bed with okay polly for the most part kept to herself but did form something of a rapport with ellen Ellen described her roommate as melancholy, as if some trouble was weighing upon her mind. Yeah. Or ten. <laughs> yeah. Ellen knew of no male companions of Polly's, only a female with whom she ate and drank for a few days. Ellen knew Polly drank and had seen her worse for it on occasion. Okay, yeah, fair enough. And, like, that's her relationship with Ellen Holland. So even with Ellen, she's not very close. Yeah. Basically, that was the closest thing that Polly had to a friend when she died. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Polly's story got real sad in the last, basically, ten years of her life. Yeah, it went downhill really fast, huh? Yeah. Yeah. How really much did. between when she got married and when she was murdered? Like, it was ten years? So, no, no, no. So she got married at 18, Oh, right. Um, okay. And like, and was... like, did the like family thing for like quite a while. And it was after, it was after, so she moved into the Peabody buildings and everything was really awesome, right. actually. It was basically a downward But then she after out. she had an, like another, another kid and they moved across from Rosetta. That's when everything. Her husband started cheating on her and things went downhill really fast. Ugh. Gross. Yeah. Basically, everything's, like, fine. Like, there's some sad stuff that happened. Like, her mother dying was sad and her right, brother Victorian dying was sad. England but like be so good, but... But, like, pretty normal stuff for a Victorian England woman in poverty. Yeah. But otherwise, like, things are actually pretty all right. Oh, also her, her first child dying. That was sad. <laughs> but, like, again, you know, pretty normal for a Victorian woman in poverty. And, and overall, like, things are kind of starting to look up and then... Her husband starts cheating on her, and the arguing is just unbearable, and then just <laughs> bucket. Bucket to the floor. Ugh. So, <sighs> the only knowledge we have of Polly's final movements comes from Ellen's testimony during the coroner's inquest. Mm. And unfortunately, this inquest is one of those lost. Oh. So the only thing we have left... Of her testimony are the hastily written newspaper reports from the same t period. Great. So that's going to be less reliable. We're doing the best with what we have, but like. Right. 
grain of salt. So Polly stayed at Wilmot's until August 24th when her funds ran out and she was turned out. Polly had to return to begging for her daily DOS money or sleeping in the streets. Mm. At 12.30 a.m. on August 31st, a heavily intoxicated Polly left the frying pan, a pub she'd been drinking at. She attempted to get a bed at Wilmot's, but she had already drunk away her DOS money, so Polly left. Around 2.30 a.m., Polly ran into her friend Ellen Holland. They talked for a short time, and Ellen tried to get Polly to come back with her to Wilmot's, but Polly was convinced that after her earlier attempt, she would just be turned away again. Mm-hmm. Polly promised she'd make it back to Wilmot's soon before stumbling off into the night. At 2.30 a.m., her chances of making her DOS money back were slim. Yeah. Polly was relatively new to Whitechapel and wouldn't be particularly familiar with the streets, let alone the better sleeping spots. And she was still super drunk. At some point, she came upon a part in the wall where a gate set back slightly from the footpath. Polly finally found a place to rest. Mm. On September 1st, 1888, William Nichols, dressed in mourning black, came to the mortuary to identify the body of his wife. William, shaken by the brutal sight of his estranged wife, addressed Polly. I forgive you as you are. I forgive you on account of what you have been to me. uh, uh, (sighs) At no point in the coroner's inquest did any of the people who'd known Polly best Ellen Holland, William Nichols, or Edward Walker ever indicate that Polly had ever engaged in sex work. But as soon as the police heard that Polly left Ellen's side in search of her DOS money, they'd already made up their minds, and the newspapers and spectators of the stories followed suit. This early stereotyping of Polly as a sex worker influenced the way they framed the entire rest of the investigation and has since influenced the way the world to this day views Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Kate, and Mary Jane. Mm. I'm still having a really hard time not being hung up on her husband forgiving her. It's I know. so fucked up and gross. I hate that. Yeah. No, it, it hurt me something fierce. I don't like that. <sighs> I mean... I mean, I'm going to admit, you know, like, when she walked away at 2.30, like, as soon as you read that to me, I was like, oh, well, she walked away at 2.30. Like, I kind of had the same sort of thought of, like, well, how was she going to find money at 2.30 in the morning besides sex work? In my head, I was like, oh, well, like, maybe this is where she turned the point and decided I'm just going to do it. But also, like, it sounds like there wasn't exactly a proper sleeping schedule in Victorian era England for poor people anyway, so... Maybe she could have begged enough money had she found people or, you know. Well, I mean, honestly, I think that she was just drunk and she was like, yeah, no, I'll just I'll just beg for the money. And then, you know, was walking around looking for anybody to beg money from. And no, there was nobody. Right. Or was ashamed yeah. or whatever, for, had was making excuses and for whatever reason didn't want to go to the DOS house. You know, even if her friend would have paid for the bed. Right. Because that was a thing that sometimes people did was pay for each other's beds, knowing that they would pay each other back. Yeah. But, you know, Polly had already been turned away from Wilmot's once that night and didn't want to try again. Right. It sounded like she just didn't want to be turned down again. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, and and remember how I was talking about, like, you know, these are the super dark streets. Like, this was... 
this was like one of the darkest streets that that she was found on um you know she was probably just hugging the wall and then she you know found a place that was like slightly set back from the footpath and was like I'll just nap here for right right now. Right now is time for a nap. Right. And then Jack the Ripper mm. came upon a sleeping woman in the darkest place ever. Yeah, I was really really struck by by William's forgiveness. But yeah, the fact that he wasn't like I'm sorry that the what I did put you in this situation and now you're here. It just says a lot about the time and place that they were in. That like yeah, it does. that all of that could happen and he could still come and like find <coughs> his <laughs> estranged wife gutted on a table and be like, It's okay. I forgive okay. you. It's okay, I forgive you. Yeah. It's like, oh God. So that's Polly. That's a bummer. Yeah, it is. I mean, I didn't expect it not to be. And honestly, like, I had the most darkest of fucked up. Like, I just had to imagine that moment. I'm just like, was she conscious? Was she unconscious? Like, what was happening? And man. Oh, I bet she was out. Her life sucked so hard that I wonder if she would have woken up partway, if she would have stopped it. You know, (laughs) like, at what point might she have been okay to die? Like, really? Yeah, honestly, I think that... She definitely was not heading in a good direction with her life, you know? Well, it's like a pretty continuous downward spiral. Like, yeah, there was... Exactly. And plus, heading in a good direction is kind of... I mean, uh, there was no, no better I, direction. No, I didn't, I didn't mean that in, like, a in like a shaming her way. No, so I know. I'm just saying, like, like, like... Nothing is going right for her. Right, like, I guess... Like, it does not look like there is a light at the end of the tunnel anywhere. Right, yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I wanted to make clear, is, like, there's just no... There is no possible good direction for her. Not just in, like, the way people feel now when they're depressed and feel trapped, but, like, literally, undeniably, there literally was no good direction for her. Yeah. I mean, like, the closest thing to a good thing, which was working for a nice family, she left because she couldn't even, like, she couldn't even handle that. Yeah. Because that also, you know basically estranged her you know she was socially isolated yeah and we'll get into this in the next honestly so like this is a really depressing story the next story is the saddest story oh great oh my god annie's story is so fucking sad shit saddest great it's so sad. It's so every everything. Everything is so sad. And there's like little bits of light. It's like Angela's ashes. There's little bits of light that keep you there. But oh my god, it's just sad, sad and just sad and sad and sad. <laughs> oh dear. I don't know if you ever read Angela's ashes. I didn't. But my like, grandpa did and told me about it, and I was like, no, yeah. fuck that book. I'm not reading that. I, oh man, several like like the entire time I was reading that book I almost set it down and then something funny or like a little bit light would happen and I'd be like okay I can keep going but like literally the experience of reading that book was almost setting it down because it was too sad to handle that's Annie Chapman's story oh great yeah but yeah that's that's Polly and to be perfect like like I said like her story is 
you know, it's definitely like coded by the setting of Victorian England, but like it's very everyman. I think that a lot of us can see a lot of ourselves oh, in I, a lot of the yeah. things that she experienced. I don't even think that the the the, the Victorian era coding as you refer to it like I don't even think that really provides that much separation between her story. Mm-hmm. You know, like really I think that it's incredibly identifiable and and very, you know, I think it resonates with everybody. Mhm. Yeah. In a very depressing and makes it's, me not like men very much kind of way. It's really sad. Yeah. No, this this story is is like 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 these five women's stories, especially because like not only are we telling these insanely sad stories that are just like this is what it was like to be a poor Victorian woman. Mm-hmm. Also, the fact that they were then further bastardized. And like, At and like this turn. woman who lived this like complex life was diminished into a profession that she didn't even have. Right. That's, I mean. Like her entire story was stolen from her twice. First when she was murdered and then second during the coroner's inquest when they go just decided like oh she was just a prostitute right obviously that's what was going on you know just like just like how dare you so that's why i wanted to tell these stories i hope that it's kind of relevant i think i think it's relevant to our podcast i think it's relevant i think that because like yeah well i mean you know and history repeats itself right these stories exist and they're they're always going to be reminiscent of what people in our spheres are experiencing uh, mm-hmm. to diff- to varying extremes. So, yeah. yeah, they're inherently relevant. And I think that's why we even do the podcast, right? Like, we've always had a kind of morbid interest in, in the dark and the gory and the procedural and all of that. But the reason it's interesting is all it always comes back to what it shows us about our time. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah that, that's... It's, it's always about, like, the, the the social impact, like, the cultural impact. Um, and and honestly, like, one of the reasons that I want to, to tell all of these, like, all five of these stories is because, like, yeah, the thing that ties them together is that they're homeless women who are murdered by the same guy, probably. But their stories, like, each story, even though, yeah, they were... They were homeless women from Victorian England. So unique. Every single one of them has such a unique story. And so it's like, how about we tell all of them? And then, you know, maybe somebody who's looking up a podcast on Jack the Ripper can get a little different perspective. A different perspective. Um, Yeah that's it that's it sorry this is this is gonna be sad it's okay it'll be lots of sad although annie's will be the most sad and then it'll get at least a little more lighthearted after that the fourth woman kate you're gonna love kate you're gonna like kate a lot kate's rad good so what is uh, thanks for listening blah 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 if you like us 
You can rate and review us on all of the things that you listen to. And if you really like us, you can follow us at any of the things on Palm, at Palm Pitch Pod. And if you really, really like us, you can donate to our Patreon or our coffee also at Palm Pitch Pod. Yay! Coffee. Yeah. That it. That Sweet. it? Yeah, that it. That it. That it. Okay. That it. All right. All right. Okay. I'm going to hit stop. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bye.